Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 10 from Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II by Darlene Dibbler-Rose. Chapter 10. From our seats in the blister of the plain, we had a wonderful view of the rapidly receding coastline of Salibs. A smiling gentleman came through the door from the cabin, holding a first aid kit in his hand. I noticed your bandages when you came into the plane. Would you like me to put some clean dressings on you, on for you? Oh yes, we both said. A short while later, another smiling young man came bearing gifts, food in the form of sandwiches made with white bread and butter. We were on our second sandwich when the young man appeared with iced tea. He took the plate with the last sandwich on it off Margaret's lap so that she could hold her tea. She voiced what I had been thinking. You won't throw that away, will you? I had been wondering where we could put it to save for later. It had been so long since we had seen bread and butter. He appeared startled by her question. Then he leaned over and said, No, ma'am, I sure won't, and there's a lot more where this came from, so you just tell me when you'd like some more. Will you do that? We assured him that we would, and thanked him for being so kind. He beat a hasty retreat. I thought he looked as if he were going to cry, but he probably had hay fever. A jeep was waiting when we landed in Bellic, Papan, a Borneo, at the Australian Army base. The driver greeted us with G-Dai. He spoke like the Australian Major, so I knew that he was saying good day. He said that he would be taking us to sickbay in the nurses' quarters. We were given a towel and shown to the showers. Margaret, look, there's hot and cold water. Oh, joy! Yes, but have you smelled the soap? I really don't know how long we were in there, soaping, rinsing, and repeating the process. No pulling up buckets of cold water, and we didn't have to wash our clothes at the same time. What a wonderful invention, the shower! Margaret, I called. My hair squeaks. It must be really clean. Desperately weary, we sought our beds. I stretched out on the Kempok mattress, thanking God for letting us be in such a clean place with showers and such caring people. How long I slept, I didn't know, but I awakened in a cold sweat. The bed was shaking, and I was clutching the sides of it, thinking it was an earthquake, and I was back in barracks 8. If I fell... It would be a six-foot drop onto the dirt floor. My heart was pounding like a trimp hammer. Then I felt the iron bed frame and realized where I was. The mattress was resting on a metal frame with horizontal springs attached to it. I had turned in my sleep, causing the bed to shake. Margaret was having the same problem. She crept over to me and whispered, "Can, Can you sleep? I keep thinking I'm falling out of bed. Do you think we could sleep on the floor? That's a good idea. 
we could get back into bed before it's light. But Darlene, what if we don't wake up in time and they find us on the floor? You're right. That could be very embarrassing. Maybe we'd better just stick it out. I wondered several times in the night why we felt our beds had to have springs. Uh, we both looked a bit haggard when the nurse came with a cup of steaming hot tea with milk and sugar and a small piece of wheat bread and butter. I felt greatly in need of that tea. We dressed quickly. Word had come that they would be taking us on the f first flight. Once airborne, a young army officer soon pointed out the large island we were approaching, P Palawan Island. The U.S. Navy had a large installation there where we would be spending the night. They hadn't wished us to become overtired, so had arranged our trip to Manila in three stages. The Navy was expecting us and knew who we were, the last of the American women POWs to be evacuated. When the Catalina came to a stop on the runway, we were received by Navy personnel in gleaming white uniforms. The jeep stopped on the road by a cement sidewalk leading up to a white building. Uh, it came to me that they were not very well camouflaged. Just as quickly, I reminded myself that the war was over and they didn't have to worry about a bombing raid. Men lined either side of the walkway. It looked like an honor guard, and it worried me that they didn't know we were just ordinary people. The officers guided us up the steps with a hand under our elbows as we stepped into the large mess hall. A band began to play the Star-Spangled Banner, and Old Glory was unfurled before us. I came undone. I couldn't help it. I began to sob. This was the first American flag we had seen in years. No one who had not experienced the past four years with us could understand what it meant to see that flag and hear that song. I thought my heart would burst within me with pride and with the firstborn feeling of being really free. These are my countrymen. Oh God, I'm free. I may still be classed as a POW, but I'm free. An arm went round my shoulder, and someone was saying, There, there, don't cry. It's all right now, and you're safe here. They all looked immaculately groomed, and there was a dignity and an unaffected aura of self-esteem that emanated from them. I could not but contrast them with the men of Pare Pare, with their broken, bowed, cadaverous bodies, even though some had said they had gained twenty pounds. In Pare Pare, the clothes were mismatched and ill-fitting. The men were either barefoot or in thongs. I didn't remember seeing any shoes, certainly nothing to be compared with the highly polished black footwear I'd seen here, and yet there was a dignity and a relaxed pose of self-knowledge evident in the men of Pari Pari too, qualities of character forged in the fires of affliction while learning to endure. Was it right to contrast them? Perhaps these young men were among those who had landed on this island and gone through the hell of bombings, snipers' bullets, 
grenades, machine fire, machine gun fire, and hand-to-hand combat, the terrors that had taken the lives of their bodies who lay beneath the countless white crosses in the large cemetery I had seen from the plain. Then these men, too, had earned their badges of courage, their dignity, and their poise from battles fought and victories won while learning to endure. I felt pride and pleasure in them all. My Dutch friends and my fellow Americans, many kind men, waved us off the next morning as we left on the last leg of the journey to Manila by plane. We found a bus waiting when we deplaned. We had a good driver, one who would have qualified for the Indianapolis 500. First, on the horn, had the right of way, but we arrived safely at the POW camp and were ushered into a long building with beds on either side. The showers and mess uh, were pointed out, and we were told that lunch would be served in half an hour. While we were eating, a doctor came to ask our names and where we were, had come from. We were scheduled for thorough physicals that afternoon. In the meantime, we wanted uh, in the meantime he wanted us to take an enormous number of vitamins and minerals. And since I had had malaria, I had to start on atabrine immediately. It will make you very yellow, but it's an improvement over uh, quinine. I told him that I knew he didn't want us to eat much after taking all those vitamins and minerals before each meal. There would be no room for food, he laughed. No, I want you to eat well. You've had a rough time, haven't you? I want you to get a lot of rest while you're here. As part of the cure, he made appointments for us to have uh, permanence uh, good for the morale. Uh, that evening, we met Mary and Herman Dixon, our fellow missionaries from Borneo. They had survived the camp in Kerching, uh, Sarawak. Daily, for more than a week, I hunted the POW camp post office. Uh, I, I haunted. So she says, daily, for more than a week, I haunted the POW camp post office, asking for mail for Darlene Dibbler or Margaret Kemp. One day, the young mail clerk leaned across the counter and said, Boy, I don't know why someone wouldn't write to you. I was so embarrassed that I decided not to go back again until I learned we were leaving for home. I didn't have any explanation to give him as to why no one was writing to me. I didn't understand it either. After several weeks, there was an announcement that a Dutch ship the Klipfontein uh, on loan to the Americans uh, for evacuating army personnel and POWs would be in Manila in a few days. It would take on fresh stores and water. Then it would begin boarding passengers. Lists of passengers were posted. Our names and the Dixons were there with those of other POWs. A bus took us to the pier. As Margaret and I stood looking at the mass of people waiting to board, we decided that there was no way all those adults and children could be accommodated on that ship, but they all got on board. We single ladies were accommodated on deck on the stern of the ship, 
three deep in hammocks under a canvas cover. Uh, there was plenty of fresh air, but little privacy and less space. The light lighting under the canvas wasn't good, so we usually took our Bibles and sat on the deck in the open. Many sat down next to us and shared their problems. I was not on this ship by chance. There were those who had received Dear John letters. Others had had letters from their wives asking for a divorce. Some were ill. The 23-day trip from Manila to San Francisco passed quite quickly. The closer we came to San Francisco, the more excited the passengers became. The afternoon we saw the Golden Gate Bridge in the distance, shining like gold in the last rays of the setting sun. A cheer went up that was deafening. Then someone broke out with, I left my heart in San Francisco. The more they sang and the more they extolled the beauty and the wonders of this fabulous city, the more alone and isolated I felt. I began to panic. When we disembarked, I would still be half a continent away from home. Margaret, do you know anyone in San Francisco? She didn't, and looked as lost as I felt. Well, we'll just sit on the dock on our rattan cases until the Red Cross shows up. Aren't you excited? Several asked. You'll just love San Francisco. But I don't know anyone here and I need to get to Iowa to trace my family. I do have an aunt and uncle in Ontario, California, but I've lost their address. Ontario? That's way down in Southern California, a long way from here. But don't worry, the Red Cross will help you. Just then an announcement came over the loudspeaker that turned the cheers to groans. We have just been informed by the Port Authority that the harbor is full. There are no empty berths. Nor will there be for days. We had been instructed to continue on to Seattle, Washington. So we turned and started north. I knew one person who was happy for the change. I was greatly relieved that the Lord had given me a few more days to work out my problem of what to do and where to go when I got off. I had never traveled alone, much less without identification papers or an address book or, or some money. It was afternoon when we docked. <clears throat> I began to feel tremendous in tremulous inside. Again, there was an announcement on the loudspeaker. It was Navy Day in Seattle, so they would begin processing us in the morning. Oh, joy, I thought. I'll have a few more hours on uh, known territory and with friends. The Dixons said we could go with them, as Mary had a brother in Seattle, so one problem was taken care of. The following morning, when people began to disembark, Margaret came to say that the Metzler's uh, missionaries on furlough from Borneo were there and had asked her to go with them. I waved and watched Margaret leave, thinking how much I would miss her. The Dixons were nowhere in sight, Someone said he had seen them leave to go shopping and they would be back. Feeling deserted, I leaned on the rail, looking for a familiar face, when suddenly it struck me. Dad and Mother are gone. That's why I haven't heard from them. I ran under the canvas, got down under the hammocks, and wept in great
great agony of soul. Oh, God, you took Russell. Did you have to take mother and dad also? Now I have no one. I cried and cried, feeling totally abandoned. Then he came, and I knew my Lord was there. My child, you can still trust me. I told you that I would never leave you nor forsake you. With the sound of his voice speaking deep within me, a great calm settled over me. I dried my tears. All right, Lord, it's you and I against this that strange world out there. I crawled out from under the hammock, straightened my coat, and went in search of a Red Cross worker. I rounded the corner of the deck, and there she was. I latched onto her. Please, you have to help me. I'm a POW, and all my papers were burned when we were bombed. I need money to get to Boone, Iowa, to trace my family, if any of them are still alive. What's your name? I'm Darlene Dibbler. Honey, I've been on this ship all morning looking for you. I have three telegrams here, and they're all from your mother and dad. My hands were trembling so violently that I couldn't open them, so she did it for me. I read, Welcome home. We've been in contact with the Red Cross and knew you were a passenger on the Kimfontine. Uh, we were going to meet you in San Francisco, but when they diverted your ship to Seattle, we knew we couldn't get there in time to meet you, so have sent money for you by Western Union so you can come by train to Oakland. We moved to Oakland in 1942. Call us, collect as soon as you get to a phone. Love, Dad, Mother. I began watching people on the pier and noticed that the ladies were all wearing coats with very short uh, nap. Looking down at my long-haired coat, I felt like a baggy, a big shaggy bear. Really tacky. I made an instant decision and went below to find the captain. When I asked to borrow his razor, he looked puzzled, but asked no questions. Of course, he said and went to fetch it from his cabin. Armed with his razor, on a remote corner of the deck, I gave my coat the new short nap look. It really was quite smart looking after it. its close shave. I returned the razor thanked him for the pleasant trip, and said goodbye. First stop for me was the Western Union office, then the depot, to purchase my train ticket. I had to be sure I had enough money for that and food before I bought anything else. When I stepped up to the window and asked for a one-way coach ticket to Oakland, California, I didn't expect the response to I got from the clerk. He slapped his hand against his forehead as though in shock. My dear, don't you know that a war has been on and only Army and Navy personnel can get reservations? If the despair I felt showed on my, in my face, I don't know, but I felt sick. No, sir, I explained. I didn't know that. I just came in on a ship. I've been a prisoner of war for almost four years. I just found out that my mother and father are living in Oakland, California, and I'm trying to get there. I was close to tears. He reached behind him, grabbed a ticket, and said, There, there, now don't cry. I've got lots of tickets for people like you. I was in business again. The panic gave way to relief. Oh, thank you. I didn't know what I was going to do. Now don't you worry. You be here at seven. The porter will help you with your bags. 
and he'll show you which coach to get on. Uh, your seat number is on the ticket, and if you need anything, just ask the conductor. He should be, you should be in Oakland tomorrow at 11. Have a nice trip. I thanked the clerk again, then sat down in the waiting room and tied my ticket and money into my handkerchief and put it safely into my dress pocket. With my coat securely belted, I went in search of a te telephone. When I got in the booth and looked at the contraption in front of me, I couldn't believe what they had done to telephones. There was a circular metal affair with letters as well as numbers around it. I thought, how do you work this thing? I didn't take time to read the instructions. I just panicked. A gentleman waiting outside one of the other booths asked if something was wrong and if he could help. I explained my dilemma. I had been out of the country for eight years. My parents had asked me to call collect and I didn't know how to use the phone. I had never seen one like this. Do you know the number? I showed him the number in the telegram and he offered to put through the call for me. He needed to know my name also, he said, as the operator would ask. I told him, and presently he handed the uh, receiver to me, saying, She's ringing now. I was shaking like a leaf. This was a big moment, and my heart was pounding. I heard the receiver go up on the other end, and a voice said, Hello, Darlene. Hello, Mother. I couldn't say another word. I was crying so hard. Mother was so calm and reassuring. She told me that my brother Raymond had just gotten back to the States from Germany and that our sister Helen and her family were there to meet me in Oakland. My older brother Donald and family were fine. Every time she paused, I said, Uh-huh. That's all I could say. I think she covered most of the family history before saying, All right, I'll say goodbye for now. Get your ticket, and we'll meet you here in Oakland. Goodbye. To which I made the intelligent reply, Uh-huh. I stood there until I had stopped crying, and then went through the mopping up process with the corners of my handkerchief compass. Uh, how like the Lord a mother was, she understood that all I could say was, Uh-huh but I had needed so much to hear about the family and to know that they had sent many letters through the years. All of them returned marked missing person, no trace of her. Mother had saved them to show me when I got there. How many times had I come to the Lord in these past years in such agony of grief, fear, pain, and loneliness, and all I could say was, Jesus, how tenderly he talked to me reminding me of promises he had made to me, counseling and sometimes rebuking, when all I could say was, Uh-huh, dear Lord Jesus. Many have asked me how I know it is the Lord speaking to me. What had just happened was the best illustration I know. I hadn't heard my mother's voice for over eight years, but when the receiver went up in Oakland, California, and I heard someone say, Hello, Darlene. I knew it was mother. No one ever spoke my name as she did. So it is that when I hear deep within the recesses of my spirit someone say, My child, I know it is my Lord. No one else calls me as he does.
That is his promise to all his children. In John 10, the sheep hear my voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. She says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. The sheep follow him, because they know his voice. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. The Dixons joined me at the depot. The train trip was wonderful. The first thing I noticed was how much the cars had been updated. The leatherette seats were no more. They were now uh, covered with what looked like velvet. There were clean white covers on the headrests. The tables in the dining car had freshly starched white tablecloths and napkins. There were flowers and silver vases on the, each table. Everything was so clean. No open windows to let in the dust. Back in the coach, settling down with a pillow in a sparkling white iron pillowcase, behind my head, I felt extremely weary. What a day! I thought of the kind people God seemed to have everywhere to help me when I needed it, and the phone call from Mother. But how could I have forgotten? I hadn't told Mother what time the train was arriving in Oakland. In fact, I didn't tell her much of anything, but uh-huh. Herman said I could send a night telegram from Portland, Oregon. The train made a half-hour stop there. My parents would have the word in plenty of time, because the telegram would be phoned through immediately. I settled on arriving at 11 this morning. Stop, kill the fatted calf. Love, Darlene. It was 2 o'clock in the morning when we pulled into Portland. We went immediately to send our telegrams, then took a walk in the crisp, cool air of fall. We breakfasted in the dining car, then returned to check our bags and watch the changing scenery. I had never seen such magnificent trees as the redwoods of California. When the train tracks ran parallel with the highway, I noticed the cars. I was amazed at the change in the body lines. They were long and sleek, with what looked like fins on the back fenders. Eight years made quite a difference. It was like a Rip Van Winkle story. The amazing advances in technology, no doubt, accelerated by the war and the changes in every sphere of life. With everyone in a hurry, I had heard of television, for example, but had never seen it. I glanced across the aisle at a smiling G.I. and his family. What a beautiful sound, the happy talk and the laughing. Well-fed, beautifully dressed children. Lord, will I ever be young and carefree again? What am I now, sixty going on a hundred? I felt strange among all these sophisticated people. With blessed assurance, the verse came to mind that the Lord had given me at the beginning of the war. Deuteronomy 33:12, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover, overshadow him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. What a wonderful reassuring verse when I was walking into the unknown with only my family as a point of reference. In the morning, the porter came through the car collecting pillows, and the conductor collected our seat reservation tickets. Oakland, next stop Oakland. As the train slowed, I strained to see the faces of those so dear to my heart. Would I recognize them? Would they know me? 
I came down the steps with my suitcase, looking into the sea of faces, searching for... Then I saw a hand go up and heard, Darlene! Darlene! Another voice, instantly familiar. My daddy's. Looking back, he cried, Mother, she's here! Then they came running, my precious father, more handsome than ever, and my dear mother, now calling my name. I ran to meet them, holding and kissing them, not wanting to let them go. We were crying as I whispered, Oh, mother, daddy, I thought so many times that I would never see you again. They kept saying, It's all right now, honey. You're home. You're safe. Then my precious sister Helen, her husband, uh, Clarence, and their daughter, Coraline, uh, caught up with us and our arms opened to encircle them. What a joyous homecoming. How dear these ones were to me. They were my family and they were my friends. The long years of separation left no reserve or strangeness. They were, as my heart remembered them, unchanged in a world that had changed so much. Coraline was two when I saw her last, and now she was ten, but I recognized her beautiful dimples when she smiled. There was a number of people from the church my parents attended, also there to welcome me. My father told me about the drama of the 2 a.m. telegram the household was awakened when the phone started ringing. Mother dashed out to answer it. All Dad could hear after the first hello was, What? There was another long pause to which Mother answered, What was that? Would you please read that again? Then a very long pause. The Western Union operator evidently knew the story of the prodigal son, for she said, giggling, Sounds like a wanderer is coming home. Then my father heard Mother say, Oh yes, of course, thank you. She ran into the bedroom crying and grabbed my father, shaking him and saying, She's all right, Orvis. She's all right. She hasn't lost her sense of humor. Uh, then she told him what the telegram had said. I don't believe my uh-huhs had been too reassuring. By then, the household was awake. That called... Uh, for a cup of coffee and a discussion, after which they all settled down for a short morning's nap. We had so much visiting and catching up to do that it was very late before we went to bed. Long after the others slept, I lay awake, thinking about my arrival in Oakland and the inexpressible joy that I knew in seeing my loved ones again. The thought that came to me when I remembered looking over their heads at the beautiful blue sky dotted with fleecy white clouds was this. If it's this joyous to see my loved ones who have walked with me by prayer along the trails of New Guinea and through the streets of Makassar, these dear ones who suffered and prayed for me during the war years when the newspapers carried the horror stories of the atrocities perpetrated by the shock troops in the Petulai, uh, if seeing them is so overwhelming, what will it be like when I see Jesus, my beloved Lord, who walked the same trails and streets with me, and who never left my side during those long years of suffering and sorrow? What will it be like viewing those eight years from this far side? I marvel at the wisdom and love of our God, who controls the curtains of the stage on which the drama of our lives is played. His hand draws aside the curtains 
of events only far enough for us to view one sequence at a time. Had those eight years been revealed to me in one panoramic view that misty gray January morning in 1938, would I have had the courage to board the ship, I wonder? Through the intervening years, repetuous winds of gale force have buffeted me, waves of tidal uh, proportions uh, have threatened to carry me under or dash me upon the rocks, but knowing how what I did not know those many years ago with C.H. Spurgeon, I can thank my God for every storm that has wrecked me upon the rock, Christ Jesus. Next time, epilogue.